Hi, and welcome to On Air with Clinical Respiratory News. I'm Nina Wiklund. And I'm Daniela Irsamtosi. And together, we'll be exploring news, ideas, and developments in sleep and respiratory medicine. On Air is intended for healthcare professionals only. I would like to welcome Carlos Núñez, Chief Medical Officer at Resmed. He leads the medical affairs organization in Resmed. Hi, Carlos. Thank you very much for being my interview partner today. Hi, Daniela, and thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This podcast is dedicated to a broader overview of real-world data and real-world evidence, what they are, how they influence research today, and how you believe they will influence research moving forward. So if you don't mind, let's start with the first question. Before we go into more detail, I think it's worth running through the definitions of real-world data and real-world evidence, as they might not always be so clear to everybody. Could you tell us what is included when we speak about real-world data and real-world evidence? Sure, I would love to, because as you probably know, I'm a stickler for things like definitions and making sure that we have the right frame as we're talking about some of these important concepts. So the concept of real-world data is actually quite broad and depending on the industry can mean different things, but it's roughly the same. It's data that comes from a variety of sources that are not controlled, uh, the way we would say controlled data that we collect during a clinical trial. Now, if we think about our industry in particular, there are some very specific definitions. For example, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, in the United States has very specific definitions. I, I actually have pulled them up on my screen. And if I read the definitions from the FDA, their definition for real world data are data relating to patient health status and or the delivery of healthcare routinely collected from a variety of sources. Examples of real world data include data derived from electronic health records, medical claims data, data from product or disease registries, and data gathered from other sources such as digital health technologies that can inform on health status. So that's their definition for real-world data. Then they go on to say real-world evidence is clinical evidence about the usage and potential benefits or risks of a medical product derived from the analysis of real-world data. So it's a, a little bit long-winded, but it's a good way to kind of ground ourselves. If, you know, one of the major regulatory bodies that we have to deal with every day to make sure that our products are safe and efficacious define real-world data and real-world evidence that way, that's probably a good place to start. Because as I said, depending on the industry, depending on the context, the definitions can be quite broad and open for interpretation. So again, it's a little bit wonky, it's a little bit specific, but I think it's good to start from a point where we all can uh, have a, a, the same grounding. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that, Carlos, because it's, it's often quite a topic. So over the last couple of years, there has been more and more focus on this real-world evidence. Can you give us an idea of why it is gaining increasing traction with the availability of this real-world data? Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons why. So first and foremost, we've seen how the rest of the world in terms of technology has progressed very rapidly over the last 20, 25 years from the time the internet started to gain mainstream adoption through to today. And what we've seen is the rise of some of these big technology companies. You know, they, we like to call them big tech, you know, companies like Alphabet, Google, Meta, Facebook, et cetera, 
who have really defined their businesses on collecting a lot of data from their users and then using that data to target things like advertising. So, you know, it's funny, we call Google or Alphabet big tech, but when you think about them, 80% of their revenue comes from advertising. So Google is actually the largest advertising platform in the world, more so than they are a big tech company. That's what they do. But what they've done is perfect the ability to take very messy, real-world data and understand what that means for a person and then use that data to create a more meaningful experience for them online. What healthcare needs to do is really try and understand how we can do the same. It goes beyond just the FDA's definitions of real-world evidence and real-world data, where it's used in post-market surveillance or, or used to show the efficacy of a device or a drug or some sort of therapy or, or a diagnostic. What we need to do is do some of the things that these big technology companies have done. Look at data from all sources. Understand that a person is much more than a patient dealing with a specific disease or a cluster of diseases and conditions. They're a person who lives and operates in the real world. They go places, they do things, they work, they go to school, they have families. And now in the world in which we live, in the age in which we live, where you know we carry a supercomputer around with us at all times, where many of us wear devices that are tracking you know, everything from our movements to physiologic data like EKGs and oxygen and heart rate, we create a digital exhaust stream every single moment that we exist in the real world. And there is a way to take that information, take all of that messy data and not just serve ads, but use it to help patients help people have a more meaningful experience. Just like people use Gmail or Google search because it's good and they get the results. How are people going to use an app more effectively in the future? Because we use real world data, generate real world evidence and learn more about patients as they operate in their real lives and in their real world. It's a big deal because I think we're still dealing with the same problems that healthcare has been dealing with for the last 25 years. As we've seen the internet and social media and mobile connectivity and everything just grow by leaps and bounds, healthcare is still dealing with the same fundamental issues. We have an aging population, people that are dealing with multiple chronic diseases and health systems around the world who are running out of money. It gets more and more expensive every year to take care of people, and we need to figure out how we can continue to do a better job of keeping people happy and healthy and not go broke in the process. And the way to do that is to unlock the, the value of these data, of this evidence, to make healthcare more effective and more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, because that's a segue to the next question. What do you see as the role of real-world data and real-world evidence in the overall evidence generation? And where do they bring the most value for the patients? Because ultimately, that's what counts. Yeah, it's a great question because it's very easy to get caught up in the fact that this is really new and this is very exciting. You know, as an industry, as a field, healthcare, health, developing and creating and innovating around healthcare products, whether it's a drug or a device or anything in between, will always rely on good fundamental clinical research, including randomized controlled trials, basic science research that starts on a bench somewhere, 
you know, good engineering and innovation, none of that goes away. What I think we see the role for real world evidence and the collection of real world data is to augment the things that we have always done. So yes, you'll run that randomized controlled trial to show the efficacy or the safety of a device, but then you'll run a real world evidence study either alongside while the patients are using that therapy or maybe as a part of a post-market program to augment what you know. We're going to see more and more real-world evidence research as a part of regulatory submissions or a part of post-market regulatory activities. It's increasing now and we see it now. But then I think we are going to see this kind of work happen at a different time scale than traditional research. In the U.S., the National Library of Medicine almost 20 years ago said, we need to construct a learning healthcare system, a system that learns every moment, every day, every time a patient enters that system and generates new data, those new insights from that data should change the system immediately for the next patient who shows up, who looks like them or looks different than them. It's a constant evolution. And the only way that happens in that context is if we start to use data nearly immediately. The way that some of these you know, really sophisticated machine learning and deep learning systems in the big tech world learn instantaneously. You know, Google search, for example, gets better every second because every second there are thousands, if not millions of queries, and it's learning from them so that the next time you use it, even if it's just a minute later, it's already a better search engine. How do our tools become better? You know, it took decades for the research that showed that um, a certain drug for aspirin, for example, in patients post-myocardial infarction, it took decades for the research to become clinical practice. Now, of course, clinical practice changes, aspirin is used differently in cardiovascular risk, but it still holds that in medicine, it takes too long for something to go from evidence to insight to guideline to clinical practice. We need to create a system where practice can change immediately. So the other big use of real-world evidence is in these digital ecosystems that we're building, these apps and these platforms like electronic health records that will allow us to change the care for a patient on the fly. It will be doing its own research automatically in the background as an algorithm does when it trains itself on data. So it's very exciting and I see a future. I mean, it doesn't I don't want to make it sound like all of a sudden it's going to be robots and machines are going to be taking care of patients. But I think what we are going to see is that things like machine learning, deep learning, even artificial intelligence will make the software that we use as part of our digital health future smarter and more capable. And it will happen you know, on a time scale that we've never seen before. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the world around us is changing so quickly that there, there is a need to adapt to that, obviously. So do you have any recent real-world evidence in mind that you would like to call out specifically as having an important impact for patients in terms of benefits? You know, I'm, I am biased <laughs> uh, because we do a really, really good job here at ResMed, um, specifically inside of medical affairs. Uh, both our, uh, our EvGen team and our value and access team do a lot of work. And, and two projects really come to mind. Project Electrum, which is a very big project and has yielded many different studies, uh, many of which have gone on to not only be presented at meetings in abstract form, but on to publication. And 
Project Alaska in Europe um, that has done the same, led to multiple both presentations and, and now publications. And basically what they are are studies looking at a very important disease that's near and dear to all of us, to sleep apnea. Projects that have many studies looking at sleep apnea and how real-world evidence coming from things like our devices, those ResMed devices connected to the cloud that we talk about every day, how do we take data from those devices real-world data, combine it with data from things like claims data. Again, real-world data that is provided on how patients move through the healthcare system based on things like billing milestones, based on these claim entries that give you insights into how they move through the system and what it costs and what the outcomes are. And what we're learning is, as we have already seen in some of the earlier clinical evidence also strongly suspected is sleep apnea is a devastating condition that if it goes untreated leads to multiple chronic diseases being at much higher risk for the individual. And we've seen some of the amazing, uh, amazing meaning eye-opening mortality data that untreated sleep apnea leads to significant increase in all-cause mortality. So what we are seeing is very impactful real-world evidence being generated from real-world data from a variety of sources that can sometimes be messy, and yet we're gleaning some important insights about the clinical outcomes of this condition and the diseases and, and comorbidities that it leads to, and also the cost to the system, how much it costs for people with certain comorbidities and sleep apnea to be untreated and what it, the burden it puts on the system. So this kind of work leads to exactly what I was alluding to before. We have these systemic problems where an aging population with multiple chronic diseases costs more and more and more to take care of every year. Here we now see research being done with real world data, generating real world evidence that shows find and treat people with sleep apnea, not only are they more likely to live longer, they are also less likely to show up in your emergency department, less likely to be admitted to your hospital, and less likely to cause the system unnecessary money where they could otherwise be at home, happy and healthy where they'd rather be. I mean, to me, that is the perfect blend of where clinical science, health economics and outcomes research come together using real-world evidence in a highly clinical, highly scientific way to show both that what are the clinical and the economic outcomes of the situation. So yes, I am biased. Those are ResMed projects, um, but I think they do a really good job of illustrating why real-world evidence is so important in this day and age, why it's so important in this digital health ecosystem that we're building, and how it can address the fundamental problems that we deal with in medicine and in healthcare today. Yeah, and thank you very much for that. We are already coming to nearly to the end, but we also want to touch on a question that often comes up when speaking about real-world evidence, specifically about the risks of bias and confounding. Could you please share your point of view on how best to address these concerns? Absolutely. A great question. And it's a question that comes up a lot recently because we're dealing with this hype cycle around chat GPT and generative AI And, um, you know, whenever the conversation turns to, uh, to AI and artificial intelligence, it turns to the data on which these algorithms are trained and the way they're weighted. Um, it's interesting. Just this week, uh, I believe it was seven large artificial intelligence companies met at the White House in the United States with a task force from the president, and they signed all of these principles that they are going to voluntarily put in place to keep AI 
you know, safe and fair, but also allow the industry to continue to progress. And one of the, um, I can't remember how many, I think it's you know, five or 10 different things that they put down as, you know, their tenets that they're going to follow. Um, one of them talks about being able to protect proprietary uh, models and waiting. And, and basically what the companies would like is to ensure that there'll be some regulation, but that they can still protect their secret sauce, if you will. If say, you know, Google designed a new algorithm in their search that uses, you know, deep learning and artificial intelligence in a way, and they've created an algorithm, they want to be able to make sure that they can protect that and keep that proprietary. And that's where I think a lot of people are starting to have some issues because to deal with things like bias um, in these systems, as we use more and more advanced statistical analyses, machine learning, deep learning, I'm not using the term AI as much. You notice probably I say machine learning and deep learning first because a lot of it really relies on that, the underlying statistical analyses that we employ to do then create that to then create something like an artificial intelligence system, that's where the bias creeps in the most because that's where you're training on the data and that's where you're creating the system of weights that makes the algorithm work the way it does. So I think to deal with bias, to deal with the confounding, to deal with the risk of working with real world data, you first have to look at the source data. There will always be some measure of bias, especially if we're looking at, let's say, claims data from the United States healthcare system. We know there is bias in the system. We know that it's going to overrepresent people who have better access to doctors and doctor's offices and health insurance. It's just going to because that's the way our system is set up. So we have to be prepared for the bias we understand already exists. We have to learn and understand the biases that may be in the data and the systems that we don't yet know exist. And we have to be very, very deliberate about building training data sets, about looking at the data that you acquire that you um, and that you analyze um, with a pretty open mind and understand that the bias is going to be there. How do we minimize it and how do we minimize it in ways that are appropriate so that we are getting a true picture of the people that live in the communities in which we're interested in, the diseases that affect them or the conditions that affect them, and then how the treatments and the outcomes affect them. It's not an easy problem. And again, not to conflate what working with real world evidence is and the question of bias in artificial intelligence, but they are becoming one in the same as the statistical techniques that are being used to analyze real world data um, get more and more sophisticated. They are essentially the same techniques used to build a large language model like ChatGPT or to build a, a generative system for visuals like MidJourney. So it's important to understand that we're going to be talking about bias in data a lot because the, the, this is just the way the world is moving. Thank you so much, Carlos, for all these insights, very important ones. And we will certainly follow closely the further development of this real-world data and real-world evidence in the coming years, because it's certainly exciting. Um, and yeah, we will certainly follow up on that. So thank you very much. No, oh, it's my pleasure. You know, I love talking about this stuff. So thank you for inviting me. And I think the questions were great and very timely. So if we ever want to talk about um, this again or any other follow-up conversations, happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
been listening to On Air with Clinical Respiratory News. For new episode alerts and clinical updates, subscribe to our newsletter. <laughs>